Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. As always, Brandon is here with me. Hello, everyone. And today we are lucky to have Neil Andrews, who's the executive editor uh, and science journalist for the Migraine Science Collaborative. Uh, Welcome, Neil. Thank you. It's great to be here with you guys. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about the Migraine Science Collaborative and what its goal is? Sure. So the Migraine Science Collaborative is a online publication and community really targeted towards migraine researchers and clinicians. And what we do is we cover migraine research from a journalistic perspective for our readers. Um, So we do news, interviews, podcasts. We have some elements of a scientific journal, but really sort of the core thing that we do is we cover migraine research, whether it's animal research, research in cells, or research in people. Anything with a research component, we cover. Um, we, We try and write our articles in a way that is a little bit more widely understandable. So you don't necessarily have to be an expert, a a physician or a researcher to get something out of our content. Um, So that's what we do. And the overall goal really is to keep people on the cutting edge of research so they know what's going on and to sort of bring the migraine and headache community together, get people talking, exchanging ideas. And hopefully in that way, um, we can help raise awareness of migraine and get people thinking about it and hopefully uh, advance research. Yeah, phenomenal. You know, we we set out with the same thing when we started Vets First Podcast is to communicate complex science issues to veterans. And selfishly, uh, we've had several episodes on headache mm-hmm. because we're interested in that. So, you know, I think that uh, what the Migraine Science Collaborative does uh, is good in that it it really makes it understandable for the general audience to read it, you know, reading some of your articles and listening to your podcasts. Uh, it's really quite nice to hear it broken down in a way that people can understand. And so today we sort of have a joint episode with Neil. Um, he's going to post this episode uh, on the Migraine Science Collaborative. and We're going to post this episode on uh, Vets First Podcast uh, website. And uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to this conversation. So thanks for introducing the Migraine Science Collaborative. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, it's great to, great to be here and to be able to, to talk about it and to, to have this podcast with you guys. Yeah. So you can start with some questions for us if you want. Sure. Yeah. So I'm just really curious how you all started your podcast in the first place, why you decided to do it. I know you've been doing it for a while. How did you become interested in, in, in doing it and especially focusing on, on veterans? Yeah, so we started it uh, in 2020, I don't know, about three years ago, so around 2020, 2019, and, uh, you know, it actually was spawned out out of a need to have better outreach for what's called the Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss uh, over at the VA here. And so when we were renewing that, it's a it's an entity, it's a it's a center of excellence or what they used to call center of excellence, but I'm just going to call it that for now. And so at, at the VA, they have these centers that focus on particular types of research, and this one's vision related. And back in 2019, 2020, when I was in still in Andy Russo's lab, Andy was a part of it, I was a part of it, uh, and Brandon was a part of it, and we we really like wanted we focused on photophobia and photophobia is a major problem in patients with migraine and 
veterans with uh, post-traumatic headache and a bunch of other disorders. And so, you know, what does migraine have to do with the Vision Institute? Well, that's it for us. And so when we were renewing that grant or that award, uh, we got dinged actually for not having enough outreach uh, to veterans. And so I just was like, I went to the director and I was like, hey, you should start a podcast or a series of TED Talks to communicate this really complex issues uh, and, and topics to veterans. And uh, I brought Brandon on board with it and we just started doing interviews. Um, and, you know, we at first we bought some podcasting equipment, but now we just use Zoom because it's a lot easier to record and, and you can have video along with it too. But, you know, we started by interviewing some veterans and then we wanted to pair up uh, researchers with those veterans and the, the, the topics or the, the problems that those veterans suffer from. So headache is a perfect example. So our very first season, we had Andy Russo and we had a couple of veterans who have been, or at least one veteran who benefited from uh, the new CGRP antagonist drugs that have been pretty successful in treating migraine. And so we had some really interesting uh, stories from them, how they get into the military, uh, what the VA has done to help them, good or bad. We don't really we don't really filter out the bad either. And so, you know, the VA is not perfect. And so uh, Brandon was really influential on that aspect, just keeping it like raw and that that we wanted to have long term, you know, long conversations with people about what was wrong with them and then have a researcher talk about that topic that's sort of a leader in the field. We thought it was important too that um, researchers or physicians that we have on be able to explain their work and what they're trying to do in an understandable fashion and in any line of work, especially ours, uh, we get so used to uh, uh, the, the, the jargon that we use that we it, it can be hard to communicate effectively. But on, on the flip side, having people on our end be able to hear directly from the patients that this will benefit is also important so we don't get um, kind of lost in the reads, if you will. Right. And I'm curious, you know, having interviewed veterans, are there common themes that you hear from them in terms of what they think about migraine and headache? Um, any Anything really stand out to you? Um, I would say sometimes it can be hard to discern because uh, a lot of the veterans that we've interviewed um, have post-traumatic headache from uh, a, a TBI, from experience they've had. So it, it, it's interesting to hear them describe their headaches in that fashion when we um, we work on migraine and someone on post-traumatic headache uh, as well. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to hear their approach, their insights with it because it's from um, like a military backdrop. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things is that they often feel neglected or not heard. So I think, you know, migraine is sort of a, a, an unseen disease. Yeah. And so, you know, people look normal, but they're suffering an immense amount of pain or photophobia or other types of sensory abnormalities that come along with it. And I think that, you know, a lack of understanding of even by doctors, often neurologists too, uh, is a is a common theme with the with the people that you know the veterans that have experienced headache and that we've interviewed, um, it, but also perseverance. I think they're really strong people. They have a really strong sense of service, and that comes through a lot with most of the veterans that we interview. Yeah, right. So an unseen disease. I mean, we hear, we hear that all the time. How there's a lot of stigma um, directed against people with migraine and headache. 
um, and an unseen disease. And I would say it's probably especially unseen in men. Most veterans are men. Of, of course, there are many women who are veterans, but most veterans are men. And so it's a population um, that can really help us learn a lot, I think, about the pathophysiology of headache and also treatment. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think most of the studies, like clinical trials that have been done, done on drugs like CGRP therapies, primarily these studies are women. So it's a question, will the treatments work as well in men as they do in women? Will men require different treatments? And there's a lot of attention to sex differences now in research, but it seems like, you know, and I've heard this said to me that, you know, the, the VA and, and veterans really, it's a great pool of people to sort of learn more about migraine. I don't know what you guys think about that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's a large population of veterans that have chronic daily headache, uh, specifically migraine and or post-traumatic headache that mimics migraine, right. right? We're learning more and more that they're probably not as similar as we want them to be, but it's sort of the, the symptoms that come along with it, post-traumatic headache that's more, you know, like migraine or post-traumatic headache that isn't like that. But, you know, there's there's a lot of hope in the future moving forward. We're in a really cool time right now with uh, drug development in migraine. It seems to be a highly targetable uh, disease. Uh, and, and, you know, just this week, a paper came out uh, uh, from a group looking at PACA, which is another neuropeptide that targets, uh, that, that, that is showing promise uh, for treatment. And it looks like that people who've had PTH or post-traumatic headache, they are responding to it more, they're more sensitive to it than, than normal controls. And that's a really, really cool finding that I think people had hope for. And it seems to have come to fruition. And um, I'm forgetting the author of the paper this week. I just read it quickly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We're actually going to be doing a new story on that. So oh, phenomenal. We're, we're excited to see it as well. Yeah. Yeah, and there's new drugs being developed targeting packup. Uh, I'm not going right. to name the company, but you know, if one drug that targets packup itself, the the neuropeptide, um, passed phase two clinical trials, and and that data was shown at at uh, 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 international headache uh, back in in September. So it's quite exciting, and you know that that work, some of that preclinical work has been done at Iowa here. We we worked on it and. And it's just really exciting to see these treatments go from the bench to bedside. Yeah, you know, it's amazing. So before um, running the Migraine Science Collaborative, I, I ran a site called the Pain Research Forum, which focused on pain. Essentially with Migraine Science Collaborative, we're trying to be a pain research forum for the migraine field. But since I've been with Migraine Science Collaborative, you know, learning more about the successes that the migraine field has had with, with new treatments, especially the CGRP therapies, to me, it's kind of stunning the contrast with pain. I mean, pain field has not done well in trying to find like alternatives to opioids. And um, I was always reminded by by someone who was a consultant for drug companies and, and helped PRF out, you know, as an editorial board member. And he would always mention in his talks that most of the new drugs for pain are really just reformulations of existing drugs or you know new indications for existing drugs. And so for me, it's just been astonishing to see how well the migraine field is doing compared to pain and also just compared to other, you know, the really hard neurological conditions like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So yeah, it's exciting, as, as you say. 
yeah, it's been rather incredible to watch. Uh, it's pretty impressive. So yeah. watching Dr. Russo go from, from, you know, a hope that preclinical, his preclinical model would mimic something that happens in humans to being on the patent for CGRP, one of the four big CGRP drugs that first came out was really cool, really exciting to watch. Yeah. It's really neat from a minty perspective to see someone be able to do that. Right, right. Absolutely. Doesn't happen every day in science. Let's put it that way. <laughs> For your whole career and never have a, never discover anything that, that goes to humans. So, right, right. That's um, great. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's really exciting. I get excited about it anyway. You know, I, I think that, you know, we we as a, as a science community, uh, uh, we being the, the migraine community and the the researchers in it um, have really honed in on the translational aspect of the models we have. And I think the pain field, the more general pain field, neuropathic pain, cancer, bone pain, et cetera, they, they lack really good models that have been translational, right? Everybody relies on touch, touch sensitivity, uh, hypersensitivity, von Frey assay, basically, and, and other reflex-based assays that just haven't translated well to the clinic. And so I think there's a really big push right now by the NIH, for example, to get alternative pain models uh, that may or may not be more translational to humans. I mean, the goal would be to get something more translational. And um, that's, you know, we're working on things like that with, with Facial Grimace. Brandon has been really influential with that uh, to look at, at facial pain responses in mice uh, as a translational model for humans, because humans also grimace uh, and it's a highly conserved uh, response. Yeah. Yeah, um, that question of animal models and how faithfully, how closely they mimic or represent what's happening in people, that's always a big question in the pain field. And um, as you say, the models seem to be doing pretty well um, in the migraine field, the headache field. And it seems like from what I understand, it's really, you're, you're never going to have one animal model that replicates everything that happens in humans and that different animal models will be able to tell you about different aspects of headache. Is that, is that the correct way of thinking about the models? I'm trying to formulate what I want to say with that. Is the answer, I think the answer is yes, yes. No, no one model is, is a end all be all fit for, um, uh, for mimicking uh, what we see in humans. I mean, that the one end all be all model for that would be people, but we obviously can't do uh, all that work in people. Um, you know, I, I think building on what Brandon just said, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at, at different models. You know, Andy, you know, Andy Russo really pushed the light sensitivity. So he really focused on the sensory abnormalities that come along with with migraine uh, and tried to reproduce those in mice and other groups like Amino Pradhan and, and, and came up with a really nice chronic migraine model uh, with using using chronic NTG. And, you know, that's one of the fallbacks for the model that that Andy and I use is that it's an acute, it would represent like an acute attack, but, you know, not to say that episodic migraine isn't debilitating because it is, but chronic migraine patients really have it rough and, you know, creating accurate models of that is really important and, you know, getting different types of validity for those models. Uh, you are exactly correct. And Brandon's exactly correct. That not one, one model is not representative of all migraine. And I think we need to keep that in mind when we, when we do our science and make controls and things like that. Yeah, and um, you mentioned Grimace. So that, that's something that especially that um, pain researcher, Jeff Mogul, 
um, has looked at. And as you mentioned, you know, animals do that too. So it's, it's pretty amazing. And um, so I guess you could call it, it's like a, a more natural or naturalistic behavior. And so to be able to, to look at something like that, rather than just poking or, you know, prodding an animal, that's, that's a good way to sort of find out how they're, how they're feeling. I mean, we'll never know how an animal feels, but if you look at something like Grimace, that, that seems like a pretty good way to approach things. And it's, it's really nice for, or we like to think it's nice for translatability as well. Like, and it's, it's a reflexive response. If you, you stub your toe on a coffee table, the face you make is pretty reflexive when that happens. <laughs> but when you are thinking about the clinic uh, and someone is trying to diagnose if they're in pain, how much pain they're in, uh, grimace can be a, a method to look at. And it's particularly beneficial with non-communicating patients like children or um, someone who's in like severe trauma. Um, but in, in, in terms of translatability, uh, and when if you ever get asked why you're looking at mice when people get headaches, uh, just going from bench to bedside there, that's one of our um, favorite models that we like to utilize. Mm -hmm. No, I think it's important to also recognize that that, that particular um, assay, while it's thought to be highly translatable. It doesn't represent all types of pain probably. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that it, it's got a long ways to go. You know, when it came out in 2010 with Jeffrey Mogul and which it was amazing, it was really strange to us. Actually, we were like, that can't be real. And so we started doing it in like 2015, 2016. And Brandon and I, uh, you know, Brandon really led the, the, the push forward in, in the lab to, to say, hey, look, these mice are squinting after we give them CGRP, something's going on. And so he suggested we use the Grimace model. And at first we were kind of resistant, but then we just went plowed headlong into it and it works really well. So um, it's it, it was pretty cool to see how it developed and, and changed over time right. for us. Anyway. Yeah, and I was also curious to ask you about some of the basic science research, whether the you know the research you're doing or others are doing that you're aware of. Um, what what seems most promising to you, most interesting to you, um, that maybe will lead to additional treatments? Is it looking at the brain? Is it looking at other things? What do you think? Well, you know, I think it, it right now the while the migraine field is getting so much attention for the CGRP antagonist drugs, um, it, it still only treats roughly 50% of them and so of, of patients. And so there's a whole wide open field, uh, especially for basic researchers to get into and start to understand sort of the nitty gritty of what's going on in the brain. For, for our work, we are really interested in the neurocircuitry of the the central nervous system. You know, there's a huge debate. You see it at AHS, you see it at IHC, uh, American Headache, and, and, and you go to, to these big headache conferences and people have debate, is it central, is it peripheral? Uh, the, the answer is probably both to some extent. And I'm really interested in the central nervous system and how it's contributing to migraine-like phenotypes and the circuitry uh, behind photophobia, behind touch hypersensitivity. And we've made some really good headway with that. And I think, you know, one could sit there and ask, well, why is it important that I know that brain region X does this? And, you know, with the development of new uh, uh, brain stimulation methods that are changing every day and getting better and better, 
you know, there's a hope in the future that if we can identify circuits in the brain uh, that do particular types of things or control, control photophobia, you know, light sensitivity or control touch hypersensitivity, that we can begin to manipulate those brain regions in a safe, effective way. There's transcranial magnetic stimulation now. Uh, we did an episode on that in our first season or a second season. I can't remember exactly, but, you know, people are wanting different treatments, you know? So if you hear about these wonderful, exciting new CGRP drugs and you try one and it doesn't work for you, you're just like, gosh, shoot, like this isn't good. Right. And so they're, you know, even with 50% of people treated, migraine is one of the most debilitating diseases in the world. It's, it's, it's second only to chronic low back pain uh, for years lived with disability. So even with 50% of people treated, there's still a huge amount, a huge burden on society, especially since it peaks at during your, you know, most important years of your life in the thirties, forties. So, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, helping one in two people sounds pretty good, but especially maybe compared to other fields and other drugs that are available for, for people with things like pain, but so many people have migraine that one out of two is not so great. That's leaving a ton of people, um, you know, without the best treatments. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think the other research in the field that, that is ongoing are just, you know, really studying these neuropeptides, the other neuropeptides, you know, the pack up, the pack up uh, neuropeptide could be really important for post-traumatic headache you know, with that new paper coming out. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in animals to understand how that's working and, you know, that we can't do in humans. And I think even back to the cellular level, people like Debbie Hay in New Zealand are really understanding the, uh, how these proteins interact with the receptors, the, you know, what they bind to in the body and how those can be utilized to treat, to treat migraine and, and, uh, give specificity to these drugs. So there's, you know, from, from the most basic of science and pharmacology all the way to the human, there's so much stuff going on. It's really exciting. Yeah. You know, that actually leads me to another question I have for you. So one of the things I've been struck at, struck by um, working the migraine field compared to the pain field, seems like there are a lot more basic science papers in the pain field. So, and a lot more basic scientists. So, when I was at the pain research forum, we had a, a weekly literature feature and we had dozens and dozens of basic science papers and we do a similar literature feature every, every two weeks in this case. And the number of basic science papers is not anywhere near what it is in the pain field. Um, I'm wondering if you guys agree with that, just, just based on our scan of the literature. And, and if it's true, it's all the more amazing to me that the field has seen success with new treatments, considering that there isn't as much basic science. Someone had one, once told me that the reason for that may be that the basic scientists and the clinical researchers and clinicians are working together better in the migraine field and headache field than in other um, fields. But very curious to see what you guys think about that. Do you think it could be that in the pain field, it's a wider net, the wider umbrella mm -hmm. versus... Um, more specialized in migraine where pain is the prime the primary symptom is one of many symptoms right so maybe just by sheer numbers uh or types of pain uh that the pain field have that mm -hmm. uh, be a bit expansive but that being said um we work with and talk to a number of clinicians and collaboration seems to be uh pretty key and works pretty well so that you could be onto something there right yeah you know 
in, in my opinion, there is not a lot of migraine basic scientists out there. Probably a handful of labs in the world, but it's it's growing, um, and and it's it's getting a lot better. You know, there's several Danish groups that are that are really phenomenal, and there's there's more and more labs popping up in the United States, and and you know the bastions of the field that you know the Andrew Charles, the the Ashinas, the the you know Rami Burstein's. You know, Ashina doesn't do a whole lot of basic science, but he's part of the Danish headache group that does a lot of basic science and. You know, they have some really influential pack-up work, and so does Andy Russo. And, you know, the, but the people moving in to replace them are, it's just not growing as fast as I would love to see. I'd love to see many, many more uh, people. You know, there's there's some really good groups down in Texas, too, that are Greg Deucer. Uh, and, and so I think that we need more people to do basic science in, in migraine. Uh, but I agree with Brandon. I think that you know, there's so many different types of pain and everybody has their little niche that they study, whether it be ion channels or pathways or, or immune interactions. There's just so many different things to study about pain. And I think migraine is this really weird, complex, multi-sensory disease that happens to be defined by pain. Right. And so it, it's, it's, a uh, it's interesting. It's a, it's a really interesting disease that I have grown to really love to research and, you know, there's making huge progress. It's, it's sort of serendipitous to be quite honest with you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of, you know, we, we cover some of the pain research because it's a, it's very relevant to migraine. And also a lot of the pain papers do include um, migraine patients. Um, so we, 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 you know, may, maybe it is a little bit broader than I think because a lot of the pain papers do include migraine clinical populations. And again, even if they don't, a lot of what the research covers is relevant um, to migraine. Like one example would be, um, you know, this idea that we mentioned earlier of migraine stigma. That's a problem in the pain field per se as well. And it's, it's relevant to, to migraine. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Good discussion. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just one more question I had for you guys was how, how do you think we get more people to do basic science at Migrant Science Collaborative? We're we're trying to do some things to to help with that. But what do you think? How do we get more people doing animal and cell research in the migraine and headache field? Good question. Uh, I think that in in my opinion, uh, more support for new scientists in the field is is really warranted. Um, not necessarily warranted. I think they're doing a pretty decent job of it, actually. But uh, getting people interested in migraine, you know, you know, the more science labs you have, the more people that are going to train in them and become interested in migraine, right? Uh, I don't think it's a necessarily an easy thing to study. Uh, it, it's complex. There's a lot of different behavioral studies for us that we do, for example. And, you know, it, it, getting the focus more on what are the benefits of studying migraine and the NIH is doing a really good job of that. If you go to any of these large headache meetings, you know, one in the Na National Institute of Neurological Diseases, the NINDS, uh, is one of their program officers who oversees a, a batch of grants that study headache is always there talking to us about how to get involved. And they're really pushing migraine as something that we should study and trying to get people into it. Um, so I think that's been a really good thing. And I know that the grant funding has gone up significantly over the past you know, decade. So it's improving and people are getting more involved and 
you just have to recruit people and, and treat them well and get them into science, get them into to migraine science. Right. Great. All right. Can I ask you some questions now? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, Neil. Uh, so, you know, I've always found it really interesting that people choose science journalism as a career. So how did you get involved with that? What is your life story to get <laughs> to here today interviewing Brandon and I? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. Probably most people don't, you know, from the age of five say, yes, one day I want to be a science journalist. But so um, I always thought I was going to be a doctor. My father was a doctor. He was an anesthesiologist. And come from the background that I come from, it's kind of... Uh, I don't want to say expected, maybe expected that you might choose medicine, but I just decided it wasn't for me. Um, I knew I studied neuroscience as an undergrad and I, I knew research, research wasn't for me. Um, and one example of this would be I was doing my senior thesis using the, the microtome, which is this, you know, as you know, this machine that has a very sharp blade that allows you to slice brain tissue. And one day I was in there and I lost focus for a second and it kind of just sliced right through my thumb. Sorry, this is too much information for everybody, but, um, I've done this as well. I had to go to the ER once. I had to go to the ER too. There was I, I, so I, cleanly too. You're just like, Oh no, <laughs> that mild moment of panic. Yes. Yeah. I was so embarrassed by it as as I, there were drops of blood dripping on the on the lab floor that I was trying to like clean it up before I told my professor about this. Um, but he took me to the emergency room, and I remember a very calm ER doctor just gave me some stitches. So so maybe a career in research wasn't for me. And, and to be honest, I do not like rodents. Um, it's one of the reasons I have a cat. So I had to figure out well what was I going to do. But I love neuroscience. Again, I, I mentioned I majored in college and I always loved to write. And I found out that you could combine the two. There actually were a handful of programs at the time specifically focused on science journalism or medical journalism. So my program was at Boston University. It's a graduate program, a master's degree program. Um, and it was in the sort of the College of Communication in the journalism school, but it was on its own specific program training us how to specifically report about science and medicine, because I think there are some, you know, unique challenges and things that go along with that compared to reporting on whatever else, politics or, or business. So, yeah, it's just a great way for me to combine interests in neuroscience and writing. It's great to be able to report and to talk to researchers like, like yourselves, really interesting people. And there's always a new study that comes along that's really interesting and you're always learning. And um, it's been a, a great um, career for me. And I feel lucky that I've been able to cover neuroscience, pain neuroscience and now migraine neuroscience since that was, you know, it's always been my first love, like in terms of, you know, learning about the science. Um, do you find it difficult to communicate these papers or these studies to a general audience? Yeah, so so I would say the the basic science papers, that's where the challenge is. So, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, like our, our target audience is researchers and clinicians. But again, we we try and cover stuff so that it will appeal to more people who really want more knowledge. I find it's much easier to do that with the clinical papers. The basic science is very, very challenging to do. 
Um, and there's some, sometimes we've been very successful at it. You know, sometimes though there, there are basic science papers that are so involved that we decide, you know, you know what, this is just going to be too much. Um, so occasionally that happens, but the challenge is really with the basic science and, you know, the methods are different and, you know, things are, you know, people are not going to be familiar with people will be familiar, like, oh, a clinical trial, they gave people a drug and they compared it to people who got a placebo. People are aware of that, but like electrophysiology and all these different fancy schmancy techniques that you guys use as basic scientists, that's, that's part of the challenge, I think, in covering basic science. Um, but with my writers, there, there are certain things, though, you can do with the writing aspect. So shorter paragraphs as opposed to longer ones, breaking up long sections into shorter sections using headings. There are things like that that you can do to help get the word out to a more general audience. Nice. So, you know, one thing that I think is funny is that uh, we as scientists worry about communicating to a general audience all the time. But... I worry about listening to electrophysiologists talk about their work too. Because it's <laughs> like Brandon's learning computer coding right now and he talks to me about it. And I'm just like, why are you speaking in tongue to me? Like <laughs> yeah, if I'm smiling and nodding goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I have to say, like, if we're talking about a basic science papers, about basic science paper, we will often sort of say a number of electrophysiological experiments showed X, Y, and Z. So we just sort of state the main result rather than getting into all the nitty gritty you know, action potentials, yeah. and voltage, and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think you know, coming away with a as a science, you know, I have to write science uh, in my papers, and it's difficult to because you have to have enough tech technicalities to get it through reviewers, but at the same time. You want someone to be able to, what's the big takeaway, right? What is the big takeaway? And I think that's what is so important about your field is that you guys distill down what we do as basic scientists and the jargon we use and really distill it down into something that is manageable and uh, understandable for the general audience. And I think that science journalism is a really key thing for scientists uh it, it really is important and the work that you guys do is really cool yeah so, make it understandable and tell us why we should care those two big things yeah no absolutely and so when i was at pain research forum we had a i ran a science journalism sort of training program for for younger researchers and one of the things that i that i tell them is that your training it's basically the opposite of what you need for clear communication to a more general audience in a host of ways, um, both in terms of sort of just sort of like nitty gritty writing issues, like using, you know, science, the language of science usually is passive voice. You're trying to get the person out of it, but good journalism puts the person into it. Use active voice. You want to hear human emotion from um from your sources the researchers that you're talking to like how, how did you react to this finding were you surprised were you excited is this what you expected is it not what you expected um so the writing style things like that taking yourself out of it um also you know putting the message up front right i know you have an abstract in a scientific paper but usually sort of you don't get the the message and why it's important till the end whereas in journalism, you want to put that at the beginning. So um, 
yeah, so it's it's challenging, but I, I think that there's a need for for good science journalism. But I hope more scientists will do science journalism because you have the knowledge and the more people doing it, the merrier. Um, it doesn't only have to be science journalists. If scientists get training in it, it's a great thing. Awesome. All right. I have a couple of odd questions for you. So <laughs> first one is, what is the coolest thing you've ever learned about in your mind? Uh, migraine since you started working. Right. right. Um, I I would say that how complicated it is, how it's not just one condition that, you know, what's, you know, two people can have the same diagnosis, migraine, but what's going on in a person can differ a lot from what's going on in another person in terms of what's driving it. So, you know, we were talking about treatments earlier, CGRP treatments work well in some people, which, you know, would tell me like CGRP may be an important factor in what's driving it in that person who responds to CGRP treatments. But for other people who don't respond, maybe other molecules, other things are more important. So just the fact that it is so complex differs so much from one individual to another and that it affects so many different symptoms. And as it's always said, migraine is more than just a headache. Uh, the, the fact that, you know, people might have an aura, visual disturbances, other things like, you know, nausea and fatigue and mood changes. It just involves so many different systems and it's a complexity that makes it hard to unravel me. But from my perspective, that makes it really interesting to, to write about. Um, so I would say that's that's one of the things. And also, as I mentioned earlier, just I marvel at how the field has done well with, with new treatments. Um, so that's something that struck me as well. We're coming to an end here, by the way. Okay. <laughs> this is the last question that we asked all of our people that we interview. Yeah, you know, so aside from scientific writing, um, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Well, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, you know, you can regale us. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. I'll give you a few things. So, so I love rock concerts, actually. And um, my favorite band, maybe um, this uh, dates me, but my favorite band is U2. And I actually just got back from Las Vegas. They're doing a, a residency there um, with this uh, this new structure called The Sphere, which is this incredible new venue with tons of video screens and so it's it's as much a visual experience as an auditory one um but i love going to rock concerts and um so that's one thing i do i live in new york city so there's no shortage of that another hobby is coffee i love coffee and i actually on my website my professional website um i have a page a coffee page so what I do is I go to independent coffee places in New York City and I rank the coffee. Um, the latte is my drink. So I rank it on a one to five scale. You can see this on my website. I've gone to over 100 places so far ranking the coffee. And there's so much good coffee in New York City. I feel like no one should have a subpar coffee experience. So that's why I rate it. And when I originally started this hobby of mine, I didn't rate the places that weren't very good. I just wanted to be positive, but I was like, you know what? Because there's so much good coffee here, no one should ever have to suffer with bad coffee. So coffee is a huge interest of mine. And then how many, I shops, love, how many shops have you gone to in one day? <laughs> you know, the most I've gone to in one day is three. Um, three. Three becomes a little unmanageable. I think two is better. 
Um, at first I started with one, I felt like maybe it would bias me in some way to do two. Cause generally for me, one latte is enough. Um, but in order to go through enough places, I started to do, to do two. Yeah. Um, I think three is a little too much. Um, yeah. And then there are just a ton of other things I love to read. So I love books. I love, as I mentioned, music, movies. Um, I could go on, but coffee, um, and rock concerts stand out to me. Yeah, there you go. Great answer. One of the better ones we've had. Um, We've had some good ones, but that was a good one. Well, hey, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for agreeing to do this with us. Um, It was was cool to hear your questions to us. I really like that. And um, being able to answer some of those, I think, is really fun. Um, So, yeah, this will be, as I said, this will be on the uh, Migraine Science Collaborative website as well as the Best First Podcast website uh, eventually. So, uh, thank you, Neil. I really appreciate your time and reaching out to us about this this possibility. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a fun discussion, and hopefully we can do it again sometime in the future. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.